Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 13 on Alice's Adventures. We are going to talk about chapter four of uh, Through the Looking Glass tonight, which is a very exciting chapter because it contains a great deal of poetry, uh, which, of course, is tremendous fun. Um, I was reminded, of course, when Tweedledum and Tweedledee start threatening Alice with poetry, and she is politely trying to divert them. Uh, it um, was making me think, <clears throat> with modest amounts of sympathy, uh, about how uh, some of you perhaps might feel as we are approaching poems uh, in the book. Um, and I don't know if perhaps you, like me, just light up uh, and completely agree with Tweedledum and Tweedledee that... Um, the fact that the, the the Walrus and the Carpenter is the longest poem that they know is an excellent commendation for reciting it. Uh, so uh, anyway, um, I uh, but I think that Alice uh, might channel some readers' uh, modest resistance to to um, some of the uh, some of the poetry. But anyway. Um, Quick before we start, two quick announcements. First, SoCal Moot, Southern California, is happening this week. Uh, in just a couple days, I'll be headed uh, down to Carlsbad, California, uh, just north of San Diego, where we're going to be having our uh, SoCal Moot, um, our third SoCal Moot ever. Um, uh, and I'm greatly looking forward to this. We're going to be looking at uh, subcreation and thinking about... Uh, we're going to actually... There's going to be a little spoiler. There's going to be a fair bit of poetry going on at SoCal Moot as well. So um, uh, that that's going to be, I'm I'm peeking ahead at the schedule, uh, and I'm uh, uh, I'm excited about that. So anyway, uh, looking forward to seeing folks in Southern California. Um, there is still time to join us if you wanted to. Uh, if you're in Southern California and can uh, and can come by Carlsbad uh, on Saturday. Um, you are still welcome. Um, or, of course, anywhere you are, you can join us remotely um, for our remote moot broadcast at the same time. So, uh, anyway, I definitely look forward to that. The other thing I wanted to make sure to announce is that this week is the beginning of our annual fundraising campaign at Signum University. Um, I We postponed that normally. We hold that at the end of September through the, uh, through the middle of October, but... That period was a little bit chaotic this year, so we pushed it back to a time when we can, when I at least, could kind of breathe a little bit uh, and we can uh, uh, really kind of focus on looking back at the year that we've had at Signum and looking forward at the things that we're doing. Um, I'm really excited about the State of the University Address this year, which I'm going to be giving uh, during our webathon on the 19th of November, which will be the, the conclusion of our fundraising campaign. Um, but it's starting up this week. So this week, I want to encourage you if uh, you to, to consider donating to support Signum University. Um, we uh, are so delighted by the support of our community, uh, and we rely really heavily on the support of our community. Of course, as you know, we do everything we can at Signum to try to give as much as we can away for free. Um, like, of course, uh, all, all of my broadcasts here. And also uh, to, you know, for the educational programs that we run uh, <clears throat> and the other things that we are doing, like our new university press, to try to make all of our 
prices as affordable as we possibly can make them. And of course, that means our margins are really slim. Um, and as we continue to move forward and uh, uh, our, we continue to employ uh, more people and continue our staff development, which has been so exciting at Signum over the last few years, um, that is where we really uh, profit from the assistance of our donations to really kind of help pull things together and make all the ends meet at Signum University. We would never have been able to do uh, the things that we have been able to do to build the infrastructure that we have. Um, I am often sort of reminded of this when we talk about when we when we're building things and you know we, we sort of have that foundation that we're building on and I know that that foundation the infrastructure that we have at Signum is only really made possible uh, by the uh, by the generosity of our of our supporters so um, <clears throat> thanks um, uh, thanks for um, thanks for everybody. Uh, to everybody on that. And so if you haven't given, I encourage you to consider it. Uh, Signum is a, a tax to a totally is a tax exempt organization. So all deduct deduction, all donations to Signum are totally tax deductible. Uh, and uh, uh, again, it's a great way to help us to continue moving forward and the stuff that we're doing. I'll talk a little bit more in future weeks about <clears throat> some of the things that we're focusing on in, in our fundraising campaign this year. But I just wanted to uh, to, to sort of make sure to draw your attention uh, to our fundraising campaign and to thank everybody. Uh, many of you have established monthly donations and we're very, very grateful for that. Um, uh, you can either do that, you can increase your monthly donation. Those of you who have not can establish a monthly donation or of course many people you know choose to give once a year in a one-time uh, one gift and now during the campaign is the perfect time for that. Um, we're going to be doing some uh, fun giveaways and stuff at various points throughout the campaign. So definitely want to encourage folks uh, for that. And uh, check out our support page, signumuniversity.org support is the place to go where you can find not only links to, play, to where you can donate, um, but also you can learn more about our donor perks program, um, all of the 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 things that we do uh, to try to thank folks uh, for their donations. Of course, this program itself, the MythGuard Academy, um, is a place which is run out of gratitude uh, to folks. And of course, being able to nominate books and vote on the MythGuard Academy process is, uh, uh, you know, one of the things, one of our, one of the ways in which we, uh, uh, we, show our gratitude to uh to folks i've been doing this now um uh the mythgard academy i mean for almost 10 years it's been um i guess it's a little over nine it's a little over nine years now that we've been running the mythgard academy um and uh, it has been a, a it has really established over the last nine years a really wonderful relationship with uh, with you fine people who are listening along as we go through uh, many of these books, some of which I have discovered myself for the first time after your elections, uh, some of which, uh, like the one we're talking about tonight, uh, I get a chance to go back and dig into something that I haven't taught through in years and really love discussing. So anyway... Um, so thanks again, everybody, for your support. And don't forget to donate to Signum uh, if you possibly can. All right. Let us, let us move forward and get to one of the awesome poems, one of the second most famous poem uh, that Lewis Carroll wrote, I think. Um, Jabberwocky, clearly the most famous. 
but the walrus and the carpenter is sort of surprisingly right up there. Anyway, first let's finish off chapter three. We were almost uh, we were almost there. We were looking at the looking class uh, looking looking class looking glass insects last time, um, and you will remember that the chicken sized gnat informed Alice that uh, there was a wood up ahead where nothing had names. Um, and Alice is here exploring that wood at the end of the chapter. She very soon came to an open field with a wood on the other side of it. It looked much darker than the last wood, and Alice felt a little timid about going into it. However, on second thoughts, she made up her mind to go on, for I certainly won't go back, she thought to herself. And, uh, and this was the only way to the eighth square. She's a pawn, right? She can't go sideways. She can't go around things. She can't avoid them. She can only go straight through. And she can't go backwards, right? This must be the wood, she said thoughtfully to herself, where things have no names. I wonder what'll become of my name when I go in. I shouldn't like to lose it at all, because they'd have to give me another, and it would be almost certain to be an ugly one. But then the fun would be trying to find the creature that had got my old name. That's just like the advertisements, you know, when people lose dogs. Answers to the name of Dash, had on a brass collar. Just fancy calling everything you met Alice till one of them answered. Only they wouldn't answer at all if they were wise. Um, <laughs> yeah, Jack, I was thinking about Mabel, too. Mabel apparently is uh, also a name. But, of course, that's an interesting contrast, right? We were looking at how in Alice in Wonderland, um, when she found that things weren't working the way that normal, like when she was trying to recall her facts, you know, as she was kind of bragging about, right, her ability, all the things she knew and had learned in her lessons, um, and was trying to recite those things and some of the poetry she uh, had memorized and stuff, and it wasn't working, it wasn't coming out right, and she was thinking, I, I, must, I must have become Mabel, right, who is apparently not as smart as Alice is. But Alice, Alice's conclusion when she saw that Things weren't working for her the way that they normally worked. Her conclusion was, I must have become someone else. And she was then trying to guess, um, she was trying to guess whom she must have become, right? She, she is different. It's not the world that's different, right? It's her that's different. And so the only explanation for that is not that Alice could have changed or something could have changed Alice, but rather she must have transformed into somebody else here She's contemplating, in the one sense, a similar thing, right? Um, but here the difference is merely, um, here the chance is merely uh, the opportunity to, like, that she has lost, that she would lose her name. Um, we were talking about how instead of thinking that she, Alice, was the same but was in a different world, she concluded that she herself was the one who must have been different, and that only by a fundamental change of her identity, right? Not alterations of her characteristics. Um, here, there's a clearer separation between the name and the thing. She imagines remaining herself and losing her name, and she wouldn't like that. Not because she fears that it would change her being or her essence in any way, <clears throat> but just that she quite likes her name. And she was, she is, has a conviction that if she lost her name and they gave her another one, which they'd have to do, right, it would be almost certain to be an ugly one compared to her current name, right? So 
So the first conception, she'd get a replacement name and she wouldn't like it as well. But notice none of that contains any anxiety about any alteration to herself. <clears throat> that is to say, Alice has a clear sense that herself and her name are separate things, that her name is sort of detachable from her. She's attached to it. She likes it. Um, but again, it's not the same as being afraid that she has become Mabel, right? Um, she doesn't think she's going to change. She doesn't think anything about her would change. It would just be inconvenient and rather a shame if she lost her name and would have to find another name, right? Now then notice the thing that she says after that. But then the fun would be trying to find the creature that had got my old name. So she has this idea. So although she thinks of the name as detachable from the thing and not essentially connected to the thing, right? Alice isn't part of her identity. If she lost her name and were given another name, again, it would be a shame, but she would be the same person. And yet she has this idea of that, like her name when separated from her would itself become a separate thing and would certainly have been attached to somebody else. It wouldn't just be lost. It would be swapped or it would be reassigned. Her name would still be out there. She would just have to find it, right? She would have to find her name uh, because somebody else would have it. So wait a second. Actually, now it does sound like perhaps... So at first, it sounds like she's not suggesting there's any essential connection between herself, her identity, and her name. But then, if she thought that names were perfectly detachable, arbitrary, not important, totally inessential to identity, then you could just let it go. It'd just be gone, right? And you wouldn't have to think about it anymore. Um, and then, what? So you would lose it. You wouldn't know what it was, and they'd give you another name, and maybe it'd be ugly, maybe it wouldn't, right? But... Uh, but you just have to start from scratch on the name front because you would have lost your name. But notice she imagines her name would still be out there. And what's more, her name would still be her name, essentially, right? Her old name, which there's still some, like she would still have some sort of relation to, right? Would be out there so, such that she could identify her name. And she thinks of dog advertisements. Somebody has lost a dog and they've put up an advertisement to help them find the dog. And how are they going to find the dog? By its name. Answers to the name of Dash, right? So this is how you can know that this dog is their lost dog. So they are putting out the name of the dog, right? The lost dog. Uh, in order to recover the lost dog because they've held on to the name. And they are telling other people about the name. And so that connection between the name and the thing will help them to recover their lost dog, right? So if you lose the dog but keep the name, you might be able to use the name to find the dog again. If you still have the girl but lose the name, well, now the girl would just have to go around trying to recover the name. Would the girl be able to help you find the name again? Um, it's not... Uh, um, it's not really clear. Again, notice she seems to imply that her name is unique. Right? Just fancy calling everything you met Alice 
until one of them answered. And again, her idea here, which is sort of a vagueish idea, but her idea seems to be clearly she is the only Alice in the world. There's something of her own uniqueness implicit in her name, Alice, such that if she ever did find anybody who answered to the name of Alice, she would have found the person or thing. Um, she does say calling everything, not just every person you met. Um, then she would find that the, the person or thing that had gotten her old name, and then perhaps she would be able to get it back from them. But notice she doesn't even imagine it to be a matter of forgetting the name. She would remember that her name was Alice. It just wouldn't belong to her anymore. She would be given somebody else's name and somebody else would have her name. And so she would have to go on a name, um, on a name recovery mission, right? Again, it's not like the advertisements she's thinking of. It's the opposite of the advertisements. Again, where instead of losing the dog, but you have the name, she's losing the name, but having the person, right? Um, And then her final piece of cunning there, right? They wouldn't answer at all if they were wise, presumably because if somebody confessed to, con- to, to, to being in possession of the name Alice, they'd be forced to give it back to her, right? I mean, if she caught them fair and square using the name Alice, she could reclaim it, I guess. At least this is sort of how she is imagining uh, this here. So what I'm trying to work through is what this shows us about Alice's understanding of names and how names work. And let me draw attention to the fact to how similar this is to the kind of experimentation that Lewis Carroll was doing with words and meanings in Jabberwocky, right? In the Jabberwocky poem. Um, The relationship between words and things is a significant thing that is a, a major, well, oh, it's a major theme. But anyway, it's a, it's a returning motif uh, in this book. Um, we just were sawing it. We're sawing it. We were seeing it earlier in this chapter when we were looking at the, uh, at the looking glass insects as well. The relationship between name and thing. That literalization of the thing like that, you know, that a butterfly is called a butterfly, but it doesn't have anything to do with butter, right? And then we're, of course, looking at the bread and butterfly, which is very directly connected with bread and butter, but how that leads, that places the bread and butterfly in this perfectly impossible situation where it can never survive nor come to be. And so it becomes this sort of intrinsic contradiction, right? Which becomes merely nonsense. Um... But, um, yeah, yeah. Um, so watching her, so at the end of this chapter, Alice is, we, first Alice and then we get a chance to explore the relationship between names and people or names and things, um, in order to follow up a little bit about the looking glass insects and then again, all the way back to Jabberwocky, and and there's 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 more. This is one of these motifs that that sort of comes together here. Um, okay. Um, yes, Dora Stroke, you're right. 
um, that it is an old tradition, that names aren't arbitrary, and that the possession of a person's name gives the possessor power. Yes, yes, that is an old tradition. Um, that there is some connection. But that's exactly the question, right? The question which Alice herself seems to be asking or inviting us to think about. What is the connection between the essence of a thing and its name? Between the essence of a thing and the word that's used to describe that? Um, yeah. Well, let's look at what happens as we go on. Yes, exactly. Uh, what we see uh, with the business about your true name and stuff uh, in Earthsea, for instance. Um, and we, we looked at A Wizard of Earthsea at Mythgard Academy a couple years back. Um, we see Le Guin working with exactly that, uh, you know, sort of mythic idea, right, about the, the, the relation between names and things. Absolutely. Um, okay. But let's look what happens next. So uh, Alice meets a fawn, right? A baby deer in the wood. And Alice is, she doesn't, she can't, it's not just personal names she finds are missing in the place where things have no names. It goes deeper than that. It's like nouns that are lost. She wants to be in the shade under the tree, but she can't remember the word tree. She knows what the things are. She knows what they're good for. She knows what she's looking for, but she can't think of how to say it. She can't think of how to point to that thing, right? Other than physically pointing and saying that thing. So then she meets the fawn. Alice thought, but nothing came of it. Please, would you tell me what you call yourself, she said timidly. I think that might help a little. I'll tell you if you come a little further on, the fawn said. I can't remember here. So they walked on together through the wood, Alice with her arms clasped lovingly round the soft neck of the fawn, till they came out into another open field. And here the fawn gave a sudden bound into the air and shook itself free from Alice's arm. They were walking, she'd been walking with her um, her arm around the neck of the fawn, like they're moving along, they're clasped lovingly, right? As she just said. The fawn gave a sudden bound into the air and shook itself free from Alice's arm. I'm a fawn, it cried out in a voice of delight. And, dear me, you are a human child. A sudden look of alarm came into its beautiful brown eyes, and in another moment it had darted away at full speed. The fawn remembers what it is, and recognizes what Alice is. When the two of them meet in the wood that have no names, they're very cheerful and friendly. They're... Alice has her arms clasped lovingly around the neck of the fawn, right? They're the best of friends inside the wood with no name. But when they emerge, the fawn, knowing itself and knowing her, becomes alarmed and leaves. Um... Yeah, JJ says, I was a little disappointed she met an F-A-W-N rather than an F-A-U-N. Yes, exactly. This is uh, um, not that kind of forest, apparently, where you, you she uh, has met the uh, a, a very different kind of uh, um, uh, kind of fawn. 
Um, what do you see here? What do we notice here? What do we notice about the relationship between names and things? The fawn not having nouns to attach. Fawn, human child. Right? That's all the fawn was missing. Nothing else has changed. Nothing has changed about Alice's appearance, demeanor, behavior. The only thing that has happened is that the fawn has now recalled both of the nouns in question. Knows how to identify itself and how to identify Alice. And therefore, also, sort of how to classify that, right? The fawn clearly puts Alice, as a human child, into the category of human and therefore potential threat. Becomes alarmed, and it darts away at full speed. Out of what, in the context of the loving clasp that we were just seeing, um, perfectly needless self-preservation, right? Um, yeah, Dolores Stokes said, my eight-year-old cried when I read that the fawn jumped up and ran away instead of becoming a lifelong friend. There is a tragedy here. Alice is sad and disappointed as well, right? Um, yes, yes. Um, it is... Um, um, Yeah, so this is a very, um, again, there is sort of an element of tragedy and of, well, senselessness to this here, right? There's no, there's no substance to the alarm of the fawn. Perfectly clear, the fawn has nothing, in fact, to fear from Alice. As indeed, the fawn itself concludes when it is just meeting Alice without the baggage of nouns and the categories that those nouns fall into. But once those nouns are returned, once it knows that it's a fawn and she's a human child, it knows how those two creatures are supposed to relate to each other. It knows the external rules, right, that are supposed to be followed and it pursues the conventional path of their relationship, namely running away uh, from, a, from what it uh, says is a potential threat, right? Um, this passage suggests to me um, a... I don't know if disjunction is quite the right word, but a lack of intrinsic connection between names and things. When the names are reattached, when the nouns get reasserted here, what results is not an increase in understanding and comprehension, right? It's not a... Um, Neither they nor we see or learn more about the essence of either one of these two creatures. Instead, that which... I think the loving clasp between the two of them 
is the reality. The two of them meet on equal terms, without the baggage of any other associations, and they get along famously. Why shouldn't they? Right? Beautiful, fawn, gentle little girl who gets hurt, right? Um, that's their relationship that's established there is sort of true to their essences in some sense. Um, there's no reason that they shouldn't be. She's not a hunter. She's not going to kill the fawn. Fawn is in no danger at all from her. But when the nouns get reattached, it thinks it is. There's a distance that's put, not just the distance between the two of them, but there is a, there is, instead of now looking at her, at who she is, at what she's like, at, you know, instead of encountering in some sense the essence of her, her on her own grounds, uh, unattached with any other associations, now the name, the noun, brings in all of the associations and the fawn now leaps to, at the end, an unfair assumption, right? Um, one of the things that I think Lewis Carroll is bringing in here is the role of what? Socialization? Society? That is names for things, whether it be, be the names of people or the names of things, that is nouns. Um, these things aren't neutral. Even if they're not attached to the essential nature of the thing, which it does, this section would seem to argue that they're not. As, by the way, I think the previous section does. I think that the detachment between um, when you take the name and try to make the thing literally connected to the name, like the bread and butterfly, the result is nonsense. Um, in this way, I think the, the real-world names of insects are better. That is, he seems to point to, Carol seems to point to what is um, sort of good about names, how names do and don't work, right? They don't work as a way merely to point to the identities of things. Horseflies, butterflies, what was the other one? Dragonflies, right? Um, these are names, labels for creatures. They don't spell out the nature and identity of that creature. Nor are they ways for, that, for them to be controlled. Are they useful, right? Remember, the insects don't answer to their names. The gnat says, I, they answer to their names, of course, right? No, I've never known them do it. Uh, Alice says, right, there's another function of names, and that is for other people to use them, to describe them, to classify them, right? But here, um, uh, here we see that um, there's another dimension of these, of the sort of the social nature of names. If names aren't, aren't designed to identify the essence of the thing, like the bread and butterfly. If that doesn't work. And if the name is not just an arbitrary attachment, but it comes with this weight, right? This social weight. Um, 
There's nothing intrinsically scary about the words human child necessarily. It's the associations, right? It's the way that the fawn has been socialized to respond to humans and presumably human children as well. Um, but, um, yeah, so this comes back to the function of names, like when Alice says that the names of the insects are not given for their benefit, but for the benefit of other people, like so other people can refer to them and talk about them and classify them. And, know, you know, and so Alice can say, remember when the gnat asks, what insects do you rejoice in where you come from? And she's like, oh, I don't rejoice in insects much at all, um, especially large ones. Alice has associations with insects that are not unlike the fawn's association with the human child. The fawn does not rejoice in human children, even though the human child rejoices in the fawn. Uh, both Alice herself, who's quite disappointed when it runs away, uh, or Dora Stroke's eight-year-old, right, who also rejoiced in the idea of uh, making a lifelong friend of a fawn in this way. Um, the use of names has this sort of weight and can interfere, can actually be not just a way of bringing to the surface the essence of that thing, but actually obscuring the essence of that thing, as Alice's essence has been obscured from the fawn here. Anyway, so we can see all, you know, some of the ways in which Lewis Carroll is playing with this stuff, and we'll see some of this stuff continuing as we move forward. But let's go on to chapter four, because chapter four, we get lots of poetry. So um, she meets Tweedledum and Tweedledee, and they have dumb and D on the collars of their uh, of their shirts, right? And they're standing perfectly still next to each other. Um, and she is th uh, theorizing that they must have the word Tweedle around the backs of their collars. And they're so still that she uh, starts to, like, see if she can look around behind them to see it, to confirm whether or not they have Tweedle on the backs of their collars. Um, notice she, she's been told their names. The Red Queen told her the names of these folks. She's expecting to meet Tweedledum and Tweedledee. She also saw the sign that said Tweedledum and Tweedledee this, this way. And so now she sees them with labels, but the labels don't match the names that she's been told. Just Dumb and D are what she sees on them. And so this is why she thinks she knows what must be on the backs of their collars. There's a part of their dress that she can't see, and she believes that she knows what must be there because she knows the words, the names that are attached to these two figures in advance, right? So she's looking to confirm her theory about this, and they eventually speak and object. If you think we're waxworks, he said, you ought to pay, you know. Waxworks weren't made to be looked at for nothing. No how. Contrarywise, added the one marked D. If you think we're alive, you ought to speak. I'm sure I'm very sorry, was all Alice could say, for the words of the old song kept ringing through her head like the ticking of a clock, and she could hardly help saying them out loud. Tweedledum and Tweedledee agreed to have a battle, for Tweedledum said Tweedledee had spoiled his nice new rattle. 
Just then flew down a monstrous crow as black as a tar barrel, which frightened both the heroes so they quite forgot their quarrel. All right. So we'll come back to the poem in just a second. Notice what sort of the sort of subject they immediately raise. And this is a little bit of a fixation for Tweedledum and Tweedledee throughout their conversation. And that is explicitly, we were looking at the end of chapter three, how the detachment of names with the fawn and Alice points to the sort of social conventions um, and the social, the, the sort of socialized association with particular names and labels here. They start immediately talking about social niceties. How are you supposed to act? What is the proper way to act towards people? If she thinks they're real people, she should say hello. If she thinks they're waxworks, you ought to pay to look at them because waxworks weren't made to be looked at for nothing. So either, um, and they're quite right about this, right? Um, are they inanimate or are they animate? And the point that they're making is either way, Alice's actions are inappropriate. Um, if they were inanimate, if they were in fact waxworks, um, you know, figures made out of wax. Uh, there were waxworks museums, of course, in the 19th century, which I find pretty creepy whenever I see waxworks museums. But um, but it was pretty popular, um, which, of course, makes a lot of sense in, uh, you know, a world without, you know, video capture uh, capability, really, um, in order to see uh, and help your like visual imagination to be able to picture things Um uh, I can understand the popularity of waxworks. But anyhow, um, uh, in either case, she is not, um, she's not acting properly. If she thinks they're inanimate, she should pay. I don't know whom she would pay, Mighty Felix. But then again, this has been a problem for Alice all along, hasn't it? Um, she also was meant to pay to get on the train. And there was nobody to pay there either. She never had the opportunity to buy a ticket and they got in trouble for not buying a ticket. Right. So um, this is actually that's actually kind of a recurring thing. Um, she's being continuously asked or prompted to pay for something. And she can't. In fact, it's not just that she has no money, which I think is also true, but um, that there's no actual opportunity or mechanism for payment. Um, so. But again, the point is, either way, her actions are inappropriate. I'm sure I'm very sorry, was all Alice could say. She immediately begins apologizing to them, um, which is, in fact, a polite thing to do. By the way, remember, this has already come up with the Red Queen, the Red Queen telling her how she should act, though some of her advice seemed to become more and more fragmented and detached from actual social conventions. Um I mean, maybe her, the Red Queen's advice was all legitimate and the kind of thing that uh, young girls would have been advised. Um, but um, but I'm, I'm a little dubious of it, actually. Um, okay, anyway. Um, she apologizes, which is a polite thing to say. But her further response to them is overtaken by her memory of this poem, which she can hardly help reciting. It just, like, emerges from her. And I believe by the quotation marks at the beginning of Tweedledum and Tweedledee there, 
um, I believe that that is um, uh, I believe she actually is saying them out loud. It's a little ambiguous to me. She could hardly help saying them out loud. So I think that means she actually does say it out loud. Um, anyway, uh, I what happens afterwards makes me wonder about that. Uh, but we'll, we'll come back to that. Anyway, uh, this poem sort of forces its way out of her. Right? Um, she knows the Tweedledum and Tweedledee. Like, these two people that she's looking at, that she's meeting, are straight out of a nursery rhyme. A nursery rhyme that she knows. Um, and she is compelled to recite the nursery rhyme. Tweedledum and Tweedledee agreed to have a battle, for Tweedledum said Tweedledee had spoiled his nice new rattle. Just then flew down a monstrous crow as black as a tar barrel, which frightened both the heroes so they quite forgot their quarrel. Um, okay, notice that the shape of these lines is... Uh, I was going to say it's uniform. No, it's consistent. Tweedledum and Tweedledee agreed to have a battle. For Tweedledum said Tweedledee had spoiled his nice new rattle. Um, notice that um, the lines one and three all end with the, their, the whole thing is generally iambic, right? Has that iambic feel. Uh, Tweedledum and Tweedledee, for Tweedledum said Tweedledee had spoiled his nice new rattle. Just then flew down a monstrous crow. Um, it's consistently iambic all the way through. Agreed to have a battle. But there's a little extra syllable at the end with battle and rattle and barrel and quarrel. Right? The ends of all of the even-numbered lines have that extra syllable. Same pattern. Right? It It's not quite perfectly iambic, but it's very consistently, imperfectly iambic, right, all the way through. Agreed to have a battle, had spoiled his nice new rattle, as black as a tar barrel, they quite forgot their quarrel. Um, the rhyme scheme is also similar, A-B-A-B, B-C-B-C, -B -C, right? Um, barrel and quarrel aren't the greatest rhymes, but I wonder if it was, clo it was probably closer in... 19th century English pronunciation than it is in modern American, uh, at least northeastern American pronunciation. Uh, I would I would guess um, barrel and coral are pretty different consonantal or um, rather uh, vowel sounds uh, there in my accent, right? But I think it might be different. Um, in any case. Um, Alice approaches them, wanting to see if they have Tweedle around the backs of their necks, because she knows their names. She's already been told their names. She now 
has this larger, shows this larger context for them. She knows the poem, Tweedledum and Tweedledee. And Jackrabbit Monster, yeah, the rhyme is, um, was printed originally in 1805, Jackrabbit says, I believe you. Um, uh, yeah, and I do think the rattle is the baby toy. Yeah, yeah, I think it is. Um, so this is a, an old nursery rhyme and presumably would have been familiar to many of the audience. That is, as soon as the Red Queen said she was going to meet Tweedledum and Tweedledee, probably many people in the audience, both adult and child, um, were thinking of this nursery rhyme. So they already knew the plot of this. But Alice says it out loud. I think says it out loud. Anyway, we get a recitation of it. And I think that that's significant. He doesn't have to do that. He could have just implied it. But he spells it all out. And I think he does this for some good reasons. But, um, uh, but notice, again, notice the shape of this. She already knows the story with them. She knows what they are, just as she feels. Remember, she didn't know what was on the back of the clock. She wasn't assuming, or rather, she wasn't assuming she knew what was on the face of the clock in Looking Glass House, right? Um, because she'd never seen around the back side of it. Um, and she didn't know for sure if there was a fire in the fireplace, even though sometimes you can see smoke. But, you know, she's not going to leap to any, uh, you know, assumptions about that. But here, she does assume she knows what is probably written around the back of Tweedledum and Tweedledee's collars, because they just say Dumb and Dee on the front, um, and she knows their names are actually Tweedledum and Tweedledee, and so therefore Tweedle is probably written around the back of their collars. Do you see the significance there of that kind of a difference? She's not taking a gap and imagining something like making up something, that's there or wanting to discover, she believes that she knows there's a kind of destiny, there's a kind of predestination involved in this whole sequence because she not only knows who Tweedledum and Tweedledee are, she knows what their story is going to be. Tweedledum and Tweedledee are certainly going to have a battle with each other. They're standing there with their arms around each other at the beginning um, and they seem very affectionate. But we all know they're going to end up fighting until the monstrous crow comes. Right? The, the plot of this chapter is predestined by the nursery rhyme. And she's uttered the prophecy out loud by repeating the nursery rhyme. So, by the way, another side note to keep in mind as context for the rest of the chapter. A poem, a, a, a nursery rhyme here, is the thing is what sort of states the essence of the thing tells us what's actually happening and gonna happen here has a, a, a kind of, um, uh, as I say, a predestinating effect on events. All right. Um, Tweedledum responds by saying, I know what you're thinking about, said Tweedledum, but it isn't so. No, how? Contrarawise, continued Tweedledee. 
It's when Tweedledum says, I know what you're thinking about, that makes me wonder whether or not Alice actually said it out loud. He doesn't seem to hear it. Or I guess maybe he heard the poem and only is when he's claiming to know what she is thinking. Notice how everybody at every point here seems to be asserting that which they can't see or haven't heard yet, right? Like they they think they know what's really happening. She thinks she knows who these people are and therefore what's written on the back of their collars. Um, Tweedledum hears her recite the poem and believes that he knows what she's thinking. I know what you're thinking about. And then he asserts, but it isn't so. No how. Contrarywise, continued Tweedledee. Contrarywise is a favorite word of mine. I love the word contrarywise. Um, there was a point I've gotten out of the habit, which is too bad. I need to resume the habit, I think, of uh, uh, expressing disagreement by saying contrarywise. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fun word, uh, if deployed properly and resp- responsibly. Anyway, um, then Tweedledee continues with this marvelous logical claim. Contrarywise, continued Tweedledee. If it was so, it might be. And if it were so, it would be. But as it isn't, it ain't. That's logic. I was thinking, Alice said very politely, which is the best way out of this wood? It's getting so dark. Would you tell me, please? (laughs) This makes the first time in which Alice attempts to escape politely from Tweedledum and Tweedledee. Um, As Bilbo might say, not for the last time, right, uh, in this in this chapter. Um, If it was so, it might be. And if it were so, it would be. But as it isn't, it ain't. That's logic. Logic. Okay. Notice what his logic is about. Like, what is and what will be, right? Again, it's I think Tweedledum and Tweedledee do know what she's thinking about, why she has recited the nursery rhyme, assuming she has said it out loud. Um, why has she just recited that nursery rhyme? Why has she just told this story about the rattle and the battle and the crow? I suspect that they believe that she thinks she understands what's going to happen. Right? Um, if it was so, it might be. And if it were so, it would be. But as it isn't, it ain't. That's logic. Um, as it isn't, it ain't. This is somebody, remember he's contradicting. If she has a sense that she knows who they are and what they're up to, she understands what to expect here from meeting these people because she knows their story. She's she's heard the poem before. Um, he is fighting that. If it was so, it might be. If it were so, it would be. But as it isn't, it ain't. Um, the kind of the kind of certainty involved in as it isn't, it ain't. That that is a kind of logic. 
Uh, it certainly is a kind of logic, though certainly all three of his clauses don't use the same kind of logic, uh, for sure. Um, if it, I love the, the difference between if it was so, it might be, and if it were so, it would be is that if it was so is in the indicative mood and if it were so is in the subjunctive mood, right? Um, and delightfully, he's got it backwards. If it was so, what's the difference between the subjunctive and the indicative? Well, the indicative states facts. The subjunctive states what might be. So he's got it backwards. He's attached it might be to the indicative mood. And it would be, that is, that's which is more definite than it might be. It would be to the subjunctive mood, right? Again, so he's got them backwards. Except there's a separate grammatical play in there in that it would be the word would in English can trigger the subjunctive mood, in fact. Um, uh, and then he just comes back to, if it isn't, it ain't. And of course, ain't ain't good English, right? Um, so on the one hand, it, if it is as it isn't, it ain't, is the simplest and clearest logical statement in the entire sentence. He seems to have gotten the others backwards. If it, you know, if you said if it were, then it might be. If you said if it was, then it would be, right? It would be a way to kind of correct it. Um, but as it isn't, it ain't. Except there's o the only sense in which isn't and ain't are synonyms of each other is the sense that avoids the uh, social rejection of the word ain't, right? If you, uh, if you ignore the fact that ain't ain't a word. Um, so if you're willing to disregard what the grammarians will tell you that ain't is not a word, um, then those two things are synonyms for each other. So again, even the complete tautology, right? I mean, he's essentially saying as it isn't, it isn't. But by substituting ain't for isn't the second time, he takes what is a simple assertion of the thing and makes it dubious. Um, JJ asks, is ain't still not a word? Um, many people, uh, many people have uh, abandoned prescriptive grammar. Yeah. Anyway, I'm not going to get into prescriptive versus descriptive grammar. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, Jocelyn, I think this is the mash. This, this is the mathematician relishing grammar, not hating it. Um, the joke is on Tweedledee here, um, and of course, like the end of the joke is that's logic. When in one way or another, he's gotten everything wrong in that sentence. Um, that's logic.
contrariwise, right? That is not logic. Um, grammatically speaking, there is a sense in which grammatically speaking, every element of that sentence is not true, um, is wrong on some level. And so Tweedledee's assertion that what Alice is thinking is not so turns out to be wrong, even though he asserts that it is logical. Um, Alice is being polite again. She is returning to social, um, the social uh, uh, niceties that she had overlooked at the beginning of their discussion and is trying gently to bring the conversation back around uh, to the question, the, the polite request that she has that they tell her how to escape from them. Um, yeah, exactly, JJ. Uh, I know that um, many people strongly dislike The Last Jedi movie. Um, but Luke's line, amazing, every word of what you just said is wrong, is one I find myself quoting a lot, actually. Kind of love that line. Anyway. Um, a little bit later, Tweedledum corrects her. You've begun wrong, cried Tweedledum. The first thing in a visit is to say, how do you do, and shake hands. And here the two brothers gave each other a hug and then held out the two hands that were free to shake hands with her. Alice did not like shaking hands with either of them first for fear of hurting the other one's feelings. So the best way out of the difficulty, so as the best way out of the difficulty, she took hold of both hands at once. The next moment they were dancing round in a ring. This seemed quite natural, she remembered afterwards, and she was not even surprised to hear music playing. It seemed to come from the tree under which they were dancing, and it was done as well as she could make it out by the branches rubbing across the other like fiddles and fiddlesticks. But it certainly was funny, Alice said afterwards, when she was telling her sister the history of all this, to find myself singing, Here We Go Round the Mulberry Bush. I don't know when I began it, but somehow I felt as if I'd been singing it for a long, a long, long time. Um, so Tweedledum reminds her of conventions. Says, the first thing you do is say, how do you do and shake hands? And then they extend their hands to her. Now, notice, having said, you say, how do you do, then you shake hands, both of them, Tweedledum and Tweedledee, immediately then greet each other, which is like the first thing in a visit is for the hosts to greet the guest, right, or whatever, but like not for them to turn and greet each other. So they do that wrong. And then they hold their hands up, but wait, you're supposed to say, how do you do first, right? So they're not even taking their own advice. So uh, what they say isn't wrong, and Alice knows it's not wrong. She's going to come back to this later on. Um, but they then do everything backwards. They hug each other first, hold out their hands, and then when she takes their two hands, they start dancing with her around in a ring, which seems to Alice a little bit strange. Um we can tell that it's strange by the fact that we're told that it seemed quite natural, she remembered afterwards. 
It's not, this is not how greetings normally go. You don't shake hands with somebody and as soon as they take your hand, you start dancing with them. That would be a violation of normal social conventions. And yet the joining of hands and dancing around in a ring singing, here we go around the mulberry bush is of course, in some contexts, a normal social interaction, but it just seems to happen. They seem to jump right to that. And she doesn't know exactly how it comes to be. Um, she There's music playing all of a sudden. And she realizes that she's singing and doesn't know when she began singing. The whole sequence of things is strangely backwards here. Like she is normally how it works is that you say hello, you shake hands, you get to know each other, then maybe you end up playing games together and dancing around in circles. Things don't happen in the normal order. Even after the normal, we've just been reminded of the normal order immediately afterwards, the normal order gets completely thrown out the window. But it's not just the normal order in the sense of like, we're going to do things backwards, like we're going to eat dessert first or something like that, right? Um, causality our friend cause and effect, which we were looking at last time as well, seems to have gone out the window as well. That is, it's not just the social conventions that say things should happen in a particular order. There's also a more important rule, a more inescapable, usually, rule of cause and effect that says first you, like, first you start dancing. And then after you start dancing, you're dancing. And you start singing. And you are singing once you begin singing. You come to be singing for a long, long time by first starting to sing, then continuing to sing. And then you find that you've been singing for a long, long time. Alice, it's like she's jumped straight to the end where now all of a sudden she's in this world where she's been singing and dancing for a long time and she doesn't know, she doesn't remember getting there. There's The intermediary steps are just being skipped. So first we have the intermediary social steps being skipped. You don't normally go straight from shaking hands to dancing. If somebody were to shake your hand and you were to shake their hand, um, you know, like if I were to shake someone's hand and we clasp our right hands and as this person clasps my right hand, I immediately pull them into a twirl like I might do if I were waltzing with someone or swing dancing with someone. Um, uh, like as we sometimes do at Mythmoot. Um, that would be weird. Like that would be socially strange. Like normally there are intermediary steps between how do you do and I'm shaking your hand and I'm going to pull you into a waltz twirl. Right. That's you don't just go from one to the other. But so that's skipping steps socially. But again, it's not just socially. We she suddenly finds not only that she's singing, but she's, she's been singing for a really long time. Um, and um, so, again, we can see the challenges here. But notice again. Once more, like with the um, elephant bees that we were looking at last week, um, 
we get Alice reflecting on this. We get Alice as narrator coming out of the moment and reflecting on this story from after the fact. We get a quotation from Alice as she relates the story. Now we're given the context of that as Alice relates the story to her sister. And her commentary on it after the fact that it was funny to find myself singing this. So that perception of being out of time, of being out of sequence with things, is a reflection of Alice's, which is itself out of sequence with this narrative, by the way. Um, the thing that's going to be happening a long time from now within the world of this narrative, that is, after this whole book is done and she is later on telling the story to her sister, that's being pushed ahead to, to now. And she is commenting on, like, the reverse thing happening within the story, which is kind of cool. But let us approach the thread of poetry so we can... I don't know that we'll finish discussing the walrus and the carpenter tonight, but we will at least... Um, Begin it. Then they let go of Alice's hands and stood looking at her for a minute. There was a rather awkward pause, as Alice didn't know how to begin a conversation with people she had just been dancing with. It would never do to say, how do you do now, she said to herself. We seem to have got beyond that somehow. Reminds me of the Princess Bride. We seem to have skipped that part. I hope you're not much tired, she said at last. No how, and thank you very much for asking, said Tweedledum. So much obliged, added Tweedledee. You like poetry? Yes, pretty well. Some poetry, Alice said doubtfully. Would you tell me which road leads out of the wood? She again continues desperately. What shall I repeat to her, said Tweedledee, looking round at Tweedledum with great so solemn eyes and not noticing Alice's question. The walrus and the carpenter is the longest, Tweedledum replied, giving his brother an affectionate hug. Okay, um, notice at the beginning, we return to the social sequence of things, and Alice immediately feels the awkwardness, right? We're reminded again, things are not going in the right order. Um, she can't say, how do you do now? Like, you can't shake hands, end up dancing and singing with people, and then say, how do you do? Um, she finally thinks of a polite thing to say. I hope you're not much tired. They're delighted by this social effort of hers. Thank you very much for asking. So much obliged. And they reciprocate with poetry, though they're quite insensitive to her. The um, She's dropping some relatively clear social cues there. Pretty well. Some poetry. Without simply saying... No, I don't like poetry, and I certainly don't want you to recite a poem to me. I, I just, I really, I just want to escape from you and from the wood, right? But she's trying to be polite. She doesn't want to say no, and she doesn't want to just say, I need to get out of here. She doesn't want to just run away. Um, so she is, in fact, trying to extricate herself politely and trying to signal politely that she'd really quite rather they did not recite poetry to her. Um she even interrupts after the first half line of the poem, um, trying to say, well, if it is going to be a very long poem, then maybe, maybe not, actually, right? She's more assertive, both in the interruption and in uh, the, you know, the, the, the overt suggestion that they not, in fact, recite the poem 
and just tell her what she needs to know. And she is once again entirely ignored by them. Um, they're on their the way that they first respond somewhat effusively but perfectly appropriately to her appropriate social uh, foray of asking I hope you're asking I hope you're not much tired um, on the one hand and then totally ignoring her social cues and afflicting on the person who just said that she doesn't really want poetry recited to her the longest poem they can possibly think of. Um, now, it's true, Jocelyn, that she did say poetry without being asked before. So there is a kind of reciprocity here. Um, though it also seems pretty clear that they're going a little bit over the top, right? Um, and so, Jen, yeah, I do think this is one of several reasons I think she does. She has said it out loud. Um, but uh, anyway, let's read the poem. All right. First, before we read the narrative of the poem, I want to start, as always, with the sound of it. Um, the sun was shining on the sea, shining with all his might. He did his very best to make the billows smooth and bright, and this was odd because it was the middle of the night. The moon was shining sulkily because she thought the sun had got no business to be there after the day was done. It's very rude of him, she said, to come and spoil the fun. Okay, um, before we move on, and it's hard to stop because, again, Lewis Carroll's verse is so good, and, um, yeah, the, 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 the verse is so good, and his meter is just so fluid and delightful, um, and this poem is so much fun uh, that I want to keep reading it, but we'll get back to it. Um, now, um, the sound. Ignore the words and the story for a moment. I want to focus on the sound and how this poem moves along. First, basic rhythm. The sun was shining on the sea, shining with all his might. He did his very best to make the billows smooth and bright. And this was odd because it was the middle of the night. Uh, clearly iambic. Very iambic. In fact, there's only one Variation, um, shining, is the only variation in that whole stanza. Every other line, I think, is perfect iambic. The sun was shining on the sea, shining with all his might. He did his very best to make the billows smooth and bright. And this was odd because it was the middle of the night. There it is, right? Exactly perfect. And so we can easily count, and this was odd because it was the middle of the night. So the verse form is the common meter that we've seen many times before, an iambic verse that has four syllables on the odd lines and three, or sorry, four beats, uh, four feet on the, the odd lines and three feet on the middle lines. Um, so that's the basic shape. And it's um, 
very regular throughout. The sea was wet as wet could be. The sands were dry as dry. You could not see a cloud because no cloud was in the sky. Um, very, very regular throughout. Very regular. Um, okay, so we get this very persistent meter. And by the way, one of the things um, that one of the circumstances that's created by having a poem as regular as this is that any deviations are going to jump out at us. So we should be alert for those. We should Our ears should be kind of trained to those. In fact, you don't even have to try. The regularity of a, of a verse form like this will lull you into, like, you will, you will fall into the meter. Unless you are extremely tone deaf, you will fall into the meter inescapably, and the deviations will step out to you. Like, will step out. Well, they might step out, jump out, whatever they do um, to come out, uh, they will do. Um, but you hear how clear it is, right, with the shining, right? The sun was shining on the sea, shining with all his might. The, like, hear the little, like, eighth notes, right? We get that extra syllable. Shining with all his might. Uh, okay, no, it's not an extra syllable. Shine, if it were shining with all his might, it would be perfect. Um, so the, the problem is not that it's an extra sil- syllable. The problem is that the stress is in the wrong place. Um, shining with all his might. Um, the, the foot is just flipped there, but it's the only one. Um, no other line starts with a stressed syllable in that entire stanza. Or the next stanza. Or the next stanza. It's extremely... Again, it's extremely... Re- Look at all the times the word the comes at the beginning of a line, right? That's, a, that's, a, that's like an iambic tell right there, right? You know, the is almost never stressed. So um, the word the is a good way to start a line in iambic verse. Oh, and the is also a way, is also a very common way to begin a sentence or a clause, right? So that's, um, um, uh, that's pretty clear. So again, so we have to pay attention. We should pay attention to places where he deviates from it. Um, because he doesn't have to. Somebody who can write a poem this close to perfect meter could write absolutely perfect meter if he wanted to. Uh, So we should pay attention to when he doesn't. Now, rhyme scheme. See, might, make, bright, was, night. Okay, so we have the triads, right? Lines two, four, six. And single-syllable rhymes. Does that pattern continue itself? Sulkily, sun, there, done, said, fun. Yes. Um, notice we have real, really simple. In fact, it's um, we have monosyllables almost every time. Might, bright, night, sun, done, fun, dry, sky, fly, hand, sand, grand. Right. Um, simple monosyllabic words. Um, we get a, our first um, shift from that in stanza six there with beseech, right? We get uh, the rhyme on the second syllable of a two-syllable word. Still the stressed syllable. But anyway, um, it's, uh, it's almost entirely those... So, so the rhyme scheme is very, very simple. Another thing, though, 
to point out is, of course, the stanza form. And it's the rhyme that really asserts the stanza form. By the way, um, I had a, a fun kind of experience. So I, um, to make my slides up, I copy and paste from the e-text that I have, which is just the, uh, the, the, from Apple books. And when I copy and paste the poetry from Apple books, it totally screws up all the formatting. So, uh, and especially I was, when I was doing the copying and pasting, I was doing the copy and pasting from Apple books in my phone, uh, to like a note in my phone. And, uh, so the format was like completely wiped essentially. So I had the whole poem, um, in like continuous, like one continuous line, basically with, with some breaks from where I was, where I was, you know, stopped my multiple copies and pastes. Um, so I had this unformatted poem that I had to reassemble into its proper line and stanza format. And it was like, it couldn't possibly have been easier. Right. I mean, it's, it, the signals about where the line breaks are and where the stanza breaks are are like completely transparent in this poem, right? So the 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 meter is extremely simple and straightforward, it's simple and clean. The rhyme scheme is extremely simple and extremely straightforward as well. One you know, constant rhyme, not in every line, right? In every other line on one single monosyllable word, almost always. And the stanza form is equally very simple, uh, simplified by the fact that we have, um, you, you get the, you get the, you get the threes, right? Um, might bright night, sun done fun, dry sky fly. You know, when you've come to the end of a stanza, um, and then as you go through and you're reading the story, you can also begin to feel the narrative itself begins to interact with the stanza form in some really fun ways. You can always tell when you're coming to the end of a stanza because of the kind of turn that you get usually at the end of a stanza. And we'll see more of that as we start going through and actually paying attention to what it's saying. Um, but so... The biggest take home, I would say, from what we can see of the shape of this poem is the simplicity of it, right? It is clear and it is cut and dried most of the time. At least it has that framework, right? It has that shape of simple, straightforward um, uh, poetry in these ways. <laughs> Jen, it is kind of like a poem by Ikea. Um, I was certainly reassembling it right from parts jumbled in a box. Uh, they were, they, the lines were all in the right order. Uh, so I didn't have to, that would be sort of the next challenge, right? Is to take this, uh, uh, uh this poem in that sort of paragraph form with the lines, not in the right order and see if you could reassemble it. That would have taken me a little bit longer, I think, but, um, uh, yeah. Great. Thank you, Jocelyn, for pointing that out. I wanted to come back to that. Let's look at the enjambment pattern. That is, let's look at the relationship between the thoughts and the lines. That's another important element of how this poem flows. The sun was shining on the sea, shining with all his might. He did his very best to make the billows smooth and bright. And this was odd because it was the middle of the night. Okay, so we notice that there are hard breaks after every pair of lines. This is quite 
common in common meter, right? That is this alternation between three and four. Um, there's often enjambment between the three and the four, so it has the feeling of a seven beat line, right? He did his very best to make the billow smooth and bright. If you were just um, listening to it and not seeing it at all, you might think that it was just, this was just th three lines, right? A three line stanza, a seven foot three line stanza with rhymes on the end of every line. Um, so uh, that's, that frequently happens, but notice it doesn't happen every time between one and there is a pause. There's a comma at the end of line one. The sun was shining on the sea, shining with all his might. And that gap is emphasized by the fact that we have that weird switch where we stress bizarrely in the context of the, this poem's meter, um, we stress the first line of that syllable. It's already grammatically serving as a kind of um, a positive, right? It is, it is telling, again, what just came before. The sun was shining on the sea. Tell me more about the shining. Shining with all his might. Um, and you, 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 you sort of have to pause to do that. If you just keep going, it'll sound like you're talking about something else, right? Um, the sun was shining on the sea. Pause. Let me tell you more about the shining. Shining with all his might. And that, again, that gets emphasized by that stress on the first syllable. But the next two line pairs, three and four and five and six in stanza one, are perfectly enjambed. He did his very best to make the billow smooth and bright. No break. And this was odd because it was the middle of the night. No break. And that lack of a break in lines five and six is emphasized by the fact that there's a break in the middle of the line. And this was odd, comma, because it was the middle of the night. Um, you can do that, right? You can put in a comma. You can put in a, 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 a pause or even a break in the middle of a line if you like. Um, but it, again, it just emphasizes the um, how weird it would be. I mean... Obviously, you're not supposed to pause at the end of these lines. You're not supposed to be all like, he did his very best to make the billow smooth and bright. And this was odd because it was the middle of the night. Right? You'd never read it that way. Like, you almost can't read it that way. It's, it makes it complete nonsense to read it that way. Um, so, looking ahead, again, I've been doing three or four stanzas for context to make sure we're seeing patterns here. The moon was shining sulkily because she thought the sun... Notice the same pattern. We get a, a comma at the end of the first line and a clause which explains something from the first line. Right, again, let's, let's uh, develop the uh, concept that was just... Why is the moon sulky? Because she thought the sun had got no business to be there after the day was done. It's very rude of him, she said, to come and spoil the fun. Once again, the next two line pairs are, um, uh, are enjammed. And there are hard breaks at the end of each of the pairs, right? So almost exactly the same uh, line pattern, right? Enjam pattern, syntactical pattern, I guess you could say. Uh, in lines, stanzas one and two. The sea was wet as wet could be. The sands were dry as dry. You could not see a cloud because no cloud was in the sky. No birds were flying overhead. There were no birds to fly. See the departure there? There are two departures in stanza three from that pattern. One small and one big. 
The small one is the gap between lines one and two. We get a comma again at the end of line one, three for three now with commas at the end of line one. Um, but the relationship of line two to line one is not the same. Both um, stanzas one and two have a simple sentence and then an add-on, like an explanation of something, uh, a development uh, that of something that was in the first line. The third one, we get two separate independent clauses connected by a comma, which is technically not grammatical, though the English do this much more. You'll see Lewis and Tolkien, for instance, doing that. Um, uh, the um, obsession about comma splices is kind of an American hang-up. Um, the Brits did it all the time. I don't know if the Brits have adopted our hang-up for comma splices. A comma splice, of course, for those of you who are, have not been habitually yelled at for this, is when you take two independent clauses and you just link them with a comma. That's illegal in America. Um, it was not illegal, at least in the first half of the 20th century um, in Britain. Um, in your edition, every stanza is four lines, Jenner Thomas. That is appalling. That is completely appalling. I, um, I blame your publisher very much. I think the editor, uh, well, I don't know if I would say the editor deserves a flogging, but seriously, um, four line stanzas are quite common. But if you can listen to this poem and not hear that these are six line stanzas, like what's wrong with you? I mean, if you can't hear that, like what's wrong with you? I mean, anyone who would try to force this into four line stanzas is not even reading the poem. Um, I mean, that goes beyond tone deaf. That's uh, that's like simply I'm not even reading. I'm just like four line stanzas. That's normal, right? Um, so I'm going to put it all into four line stanzas. That is completely appalling. Um, I mean, greater, uh, offenses have been committed against poetry by publishers and editors in the past, but that's pretty bad, actually. Um, anyway, okay. Uh, anyway, so, I, but anyway, the point I was making about that third stanza is the divide, the, 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 blah, 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 the divide at the end of the first line, um, doesn't trigger an expansion of an idea from line one. It just adds another parallel thing. So that's the small change. The big change is we get a break between lines five and six. We get the dash, right? Um, so that's weird. Anyway, the point is here, I'm not going to necessarily comment on every one. The point is what is always good to do, what is always fun to do when you start reading a poem. You've got to get, you've got to get the, as it were, the, the oral vocabulary of the poem in your ears and your head, if you see what I mean by this, right? By looking at this stuff, seeing how it works, looking at the initial patterns, is why I'm focusing on these first three stanzas, right? What are the, what are the patterns that were given to begin the poem? Because that's, that's um, the trajectory we're set on. Um, and so from there, if there are changes, if there are deviations, well, then... We can notice those, and we can hear those. Um, uh, okay. Genertonis is... Uh, uh, okay, we're going to do a public shaming. Reader's Library Classics 2021. That's terrible. 
It's just awful. It's just awful. Who published mine? I don't even know. Oh, the Apple Books one. Anyway, I don't know. I'm not going to look. I'm out of time. Um, we're out of time. Let me just read the poem. What we're going to do is I'm going to read the poem, and then we're not going to talk about it. <laughs> That's the plan. I see no, I see no problems with this plan. Okay. The sun was shining on the sea, shining with all his might. He did his very best to make the billows smooth and bright. And this was odd because it was the middle of the night. The moon was shining sulkily because she thought the sun had got no business to be there after the day was done. It's very rude of him, she said, to come and spoil the fun. The sea was wet as wet could be, the sands were dry as dry. You could not see a cloud, because no cloud was in the sky. No birds were flying overhead, there were no birds to fly. The walrus and the carpenter were walking close at hand. They wept like anything to see such quantities of sand. If this were only cleared away, they said it would be grand. Pause for just a, a moment. There is, of course, one other level of the oral vocabulary of the poem that we should notice, and that is the shape of the stanzas themselves. Notice that we get three setup stanzas before we begin the narrative proper about what the walrus and the carpenter, the, like when the walrus and the carpenter are introduced and what they do. Um, we are already, whether we can, whether we think about it or not, we're already thinking in threes because of the stanza form and the rhyme scheme of this poem. And look, we have a set of three stanzas at the beginning. And if we glance ahead, well, golly, if you look, the poem is 18 stanzas long. It's in a multiple of threes, right? So it's um, a sort of coincidence, unless it's not a coincidence, that I could fit three stanzas per column uh, per slide here. Okay, okay, all right, all right. I'll start again at stanza four there. The walrus and the carpenter were walking close at hand. They wept like anything to see such quantities of sand. If this were only cleared away, they said, it would be grand. If seven maids with seven mops swept it for half a year, do you suppose the walrus said that they could get it clear? I doubt it, said the carpenter, and shed a bitter tear. Oh, oysters, come and walk with us, the walrus did beseech. A pleasant walk, a pleasant talk, along the briny beach. We cannot do with more than four to give a hand to each. The eldest oyster looked at him, but never said a word. The eldest oyster winked his eye and shook his head. Sorry, but never a word he said. Good grief. But never a word he said. That's interesting that I misread that. I'll have to think about that more later. The eldest oyster looked at him, but never a word he said. I know why. The elder oyster winked his eye and shook his heavy head, meaning to say he did not choose to leave the oyster bed. But four young oysters hurried up, all eager for the treat. Their coats were brushed, their faces washed, their shoes were clean and neat. And this was odd, because, you know, they hadn't any feet. Four other oysters followed them, and yet another four. And thick and fast they came at last, and more and more and more, all hopping through the frothy waves and scrambling to the shore. The walrus and the carpenter walked on a mile or so, and then they rested on a rock conveniently low, and all the little oysters stood and waited in a row. The time has come, the walrus said, to talk of many things, of shoes and ships and sealing wax, of cabbages and kings, and why the sea is boiling hot, and whether pigs have wings. 
but wait a bit, the oysters cried, before we have our chat, for some of us are out of breath and all of us are fat. No hurry, said the carpenter. They thanked him much for that. A loaf of bread, the walrus said, is what we chiefly need. Pepper and vinegar, besides, are very good indeed. Now if you're ready, oysters dear, we can begin to feed. But not on us, the oysters cried, turning a little blue. After such kindness, that would be a dismal thing to do. The night is fine, the walrus said. Do you admire the view? It was so kind of you to come, and you are very nice. The carpenter said nothing but, cut us another slice. I wish you were not quite so deaf. I've had to ask you twice. It seems a shame, the walrus said, to play them such a trick. After we've brought them out so far and made them trot so quick. The carpenter said nothing but, the butter's spread too thick. I weep for you, the walrus said. I deeply sympathize. With sobs and tears he sorted out those of the largest size, holding his pocket handkerchief before his streaming eyes. Oh, oysters, said the carpenter, you've had a pleasant run. Shall we be trotting home again? But answer came there none. And this was scarcely odd, because they'd eaten every one. The walrus and the carpenter. Um, okay, so... um. Now I'm going to proceed to not talk more about the poem. We'll talk more about this poem next week. Having established our vocabulary, having, having listened through the story once through, we will return to this um, at uh, the beginning of class next week. Um, and we will think through. I want you to, having again, having thought through the vocabulary, I want you to be ready what are lines that jump out of you? What are places, lines that jump out of you? How does this story work? Like, what is this story? And how, what's the point of the story? Um, what are other places in the poem that, like, what's, what's going on here? What are things that you notice? What are things that you think are important to talk about? What are lines that jumped out at you and why? Um, we'll be better prepared to be able to talk about those things, having established some of the ground rules of this poem uh, as we move forward. Um, but... Uh, it is, uh, in fact, the middle of the night, so I will let you guys go here tonight, and we shall resume with the walrus and the carpenter next time. Thanks so much for joining me tonight. Can't wait for more walrus and the carpenter next time, uh, and then maybe we'll get on and get to talk about the White Queen a bit. Um, we'll see. <laughs> Not 100% confident we'll be leaving Chapter 4 next time, but maybe we will. Who knows? Anyway, um... Thanks so much, and I will see you guys next week. I'll see some of you at SoCal Moot next week. Uh, not next week. This week, in fact, in just a couple days. Three days from now, I will see some of you, uh, and that'll be fantastic. Thanks, everybody. Good night now.